0: and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth in that day people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship they will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Thanks, Derek. So we're thinking about what it means to be proud and pride can be a good thing. It can be healthy to be you know, proud of your kids' achievements or. Proud, for example, if you made a timer for your coffee grinder and it now just, I mean, you could brag about it with your friends. We're taught to take pride in our work. There's a healthiness about being proud. But at some point, pride crosses the line over into arrogance, doesn't it? When we get too big for our boots, when we overestimate who we are, or when we put undue confidence in our abilities or our achievements or in our possessions or perhaps in things we think we can do, and when we perhaps glory in ourselves, pride becomes arrogant. And arrogant pride is the kind of thing I reckon it's easier for us to see in other people. Don't you think? I reckon Aussies on the whole are pretty good at picking someone when they're proud and then knocking them out, taking their knees out from under them, bringing them down to earth. We're pretty good at it. When pride leads us to think that we don't need God. Pride's gone beyond arrogance, hasn't it? It's a very dangerous kind of territory. When we think that we can live our lives without God, that's the kind of pride that I reckon you see in this passage, sitting behind the nation of Israel, um, thinking we can do it our way. Today's passage, um, the last verse, ends with this, this plea to trust God, not in man, not in humans, not in our latest technology, not in our, the power of humanity, but to trust God above everything else. Last week, what we saw was um, the scope of this vision, this book of, of Isaiah. We looked at chapter 1, verse 1, through to 2, verse 5, and you get the scope of the, the book as a whole. It's a book of a compilation of different poems and songs that um, put Isaiah's words from God onto paper. And as you read through it, it presents this vision of of of, a transformed Judah and Jerusalem. So chapter 1 shows you the mess that Judah's in and that God is going to act. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, you get the transformation shown to you, this new Zion, people coming to God. And then 2, verse 5 ends with an appeal to the descendants of Jacob, to the people of Israel, an appeal to them to walk in the light of of God, to walk in God's ways. And then as you look across chapter 2, verse 6, through to chapter 4, verse six, the end of chapter four, that's what we're looking at today. This is the shape of it. So chapter two that was read for us ends with another appeal. So two verse five, the appeal is to walk in the light of God. Two verse 22, there's a second appeal there. Stop putting trust in humans. And then chapter three opens up to this description of God's judgment. And as you read through it, like um, the men's growth group did on Wednesday to help write the sermon for today, as you read through chapter three, you get this refining judgment that happens this judgment that ends up with something good, a remnant that's good at the end of it. It's a purposeful judgment. And then you turn into chapter four. Judgment turns to salvation in chapter four. And you have this positive picture, which kind of echoes and reflects what you saw in chapter two, verses one to five. Um, by the end of chapter four, you've seen these two cycles of judgment. At the end of chapter four, the the picture is, it's rich in kind of Exodus language. It talks about um, God dwelling with his people with a fire at night and the cloud by day that sort of language. But we've seen these two cycles of judgment followed by salvation. This time through, um, there is a day on which both will happen. So the language and the way that Isaiah describes it, there is a day on which judgment and salvation will happen. And that's that day. It's the day of the Lord. Just have a look across. So you'll see it in 2 verse 11, in that day. In 2 verse 12, the Lord has a day. 2 verse 17, in that day, and again in 2 verse 20. You turn into chapter 3, it's there in verse 7, verse 18. In chapter 4, it's in verse 1 and in verse 2. Isaiah uses this day to talk about the day of the Lord, but there's another trick to this. In chapter 2, it's different to chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 2, it's the end of time at type day, Jesus' return. In chapters 3 and 4, it's... Um, its judgment and salvation for Judah and Jerusalem, talking about things that are closer, nearer, probably what happens with Babylon. So you'll see in 3 verse 1 it goes, See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. And that does happen after, soon after Isaiah's day. So Isaiah sees God judge, God's judgment of Jerusalem under Babylon as kind of a taste of the final day of judgment which we're looking at here in chapter two, because we're zooming in on chapter two. If I try to put it into a picture, it's something like this. Chapter two is describing the day of, or the final day of God's judgment, the final day of the Lord. This New Testament time, which we know has two parts to it. But in chapter chapter four, two to six, Isaiah looks ahead to the salvation God's going to bring. But in the middle, the judgment and salvation it talks about is more immediate for Israel, for Judah and Jerusalem. And as he paints this picture in chapter two of the day of the Lord at the end of time, it gives hope to the nation of Israel as they go through this turmoil under Babylon. What we're doing this morning is we're just looking in chapter two to make it easy. Um, if you want to go a bit deeper, I reckon I've recommended this commentary in the email update as well, Barry Webb's commentary on Isaiah. He just makes complicated, simple, and I reckon if you want to make use of his commentary, look at, look at the front, look at how he breaks up Isaiah, read a chunk. Don't just read one or two verses, read a chapter or a couple of chapters. So three steps you could do, for example, for Tom's sermon next week, Tom's going to be taking us through chapter six. So read the passage, step one. Step two, get Barry's commentary out, read what he says about chapter six. And then step three, go back and read the passage again and test what you've just read, see what you think of it. You'll get a much better understanding. And for someone who trained as an engineer, someone like Barry is a, is a really helpful person to have around. Because what we're looking at today, it's poetry. And studying engineering, I never thought there'd be the day where I'd be explaining a poem to a group of people. I mean, poetry, you've got cold chisel type poetry or mid-eyed oil type poetry, but this is serious stuff. And it's not rhyming type stuff, it's, let's do it. Okay, so with a bit of help from Mr Webb, When you look, actually that's helpful, a bit of help from the web. (laughs) Yeah, stick to the notes. What we're looking at here in chapter two, it is a poem. And so as you analyze this poem and try to understand what's here, there is a structure to it. First of all, there's an introduction. So the introduction is lengthy. It's in verses two to nine. Um, Isaiah introduces the problem. And the problem is the idolatry and the pride of the people of Israel. That's your problem. That's your introduction. He pleaded with the people in 2 verse 5 to come back to God, but it seems they haven't responded. So 2 verse 6 makes an accusation to God or at God. You've abandoned your people. It's kind of a brash kind of accusation, which then Isaiah um, justifies because of the state of the nation. Isaiah says the people have turned away to pagan practices, chased after their wealth and so on. So if you pick it up in verse 6, it goes halfway through the verse They're full of superstitions from the east. This is describing God's people, the people of Israel in Judah and Jerusalem. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their fingers have made. It's this picture of them deviating from God, chasing after wealth and things, and in particular, chasing after the gods of the people around. So there's the introduction. The people have turned away from God. Next, you'll see there's a movement in this poem. Like all good kind of hearty things, there's a movement. Um, it, talks in, uh, it moves from um, talking about Judah and Jerusalem in verses two, uh, verses 6 to 11. So 2 verses 6 to 11 talk about Judah and Jerusalem being humbled, but then it moves to talking about the whole world being humbled in verses 12 to 21, Isaiah warns that the day of the Lord will be terrible. This terrible t- day will come. It's a day of judgment um, for Israel in particular, 6 to 11, but also for the whole world in verses 12 to 22. Everything that people have put their trust in, all these things they put their trust in, it's going to be leveled and judged and destroyed. So as you're looking at this poem, it's got an introduction. It's got a movement to it. Next there's refrains. Lines that come back like a good chorus in a song. Um, There's two refrains. So Isaiah repeats himself, and as he repeats himself, he builds. So the first refrain, it's there in 2 verse 9. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. God's going to humble everybody. When it repeats in 2 verse 11, it goes, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and the human pride brought low. And then he adds a bit more in verse 11 the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then when the refrain comes back around in verse 17, the arrogance of, of people or man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and it adds a little bit more, and the idols will, be totally, will totally disappear. So you've got this refrain that echoes through and holds this poem together, makes it move it along so you can see how it all fits together. And the second refrain describes this fear of God that makes you want to go and hide. In fact, it tells you to. So in the light of the day of the Lord and what it's going to be like, Isaiah says to the people of Judah, go and hide. Go and hide yourself. So verse 10, go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. And then when the refrain comes back in verse 19, um, it's thinking broader than Judah now. It's thinking of everybody. 2 verse 19, people will flee to caves in the rocks and holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty. And he adds a bit more when he rises to shake the earth, this idea of judging the earth. They won't be able to avoid God's majesty and God's splendor. They'll want to run away and hide. And it comes back again in verse 21. They'll flee to the caverns and the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. So the two refrains make it all hold together, carry it forward. And as you think about it, it presents the day of the Lord as both negative and positive. So this day of the Lord that will come when God judges and brings salvation, it'll be negative in that people will be put in their place. The proud will be humbled. They'll be caused to run away and bury their heads and hide. And positively, God will be exalted for who he is in all his splendor and his majesty. We'll see him for who he is. Then the final kind of structural feature which um, you need is a conclusion, which I've got ahead of myself there. The conclusion's in verse 22. Um, and it's in the conclusion, I think you see the application. Stop trusting in all these other things. Stop trusting in human achievement and trust in God. So verse 22, stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Um, you know those... It's a long time ago, those little etch pad things where you had two dials and you could squiggle around and draw a picture and then you shake it and it clears. Even the kids know it, cool. You can draw really, really detailed pictures on that thing but then if you bump it, it's all gone. That's what we're like as humans. We can make amazing things in this world but then it's gone tomorrow. You spilt your coffee on it, done. There's this reminder in verse 22, don't trust in your human achievements in God, he's sovereign over everything. So as you sit back and look over Isaiah chapter 2, verses 6 to 22, and let it sink in, yeah, it is poetry. You can appreciate the way it's written as well as the content, and it's huge. It's a very eloquent way of saying, pull your head in. Stop living like God doesn't exist. So this is the message from Isaiah to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Start trusting in God again, is what he's saying. But it's also a message for the whole world. When we read this into its original context, it's God's way of speaking to his people Judah and telling him to stop trusting in mankind in the allegiances they'll make with the nations around them, with Egypt or even um, with their fellows in in the northern tribe at times. Stop making these allegiances and put your trust in God. As you read through Isaiah, that theme will come back around in the early chapters. When we read this passage in our context, though, it's a rebuke for us as well because we are very much like Israel. We're very quick to rely on human ability and slow to acknowledge God. So that's the the structure of this, this poem. Then you've got those refrains. Um, there's a few more things to notice. There's a couple of themes which you've probably seen already. It's almost pointless for me to bring your attention to them except that as you slow down and think about it, it lets it hit home a little harder. Um, so in, in the introduction, um, you have this theme of idolatry begin. So if you look at verse 8, is the, the heart of it. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. This comes from being distracted by the things that the nations around them are distracted by. Instead of being God's holy people, marked out as belonging to God, serving God in everything, they start almost worshipping their own endeavours being proud of their own achievements, putting their trust in what they can do. And Judah's idolatrous behavior, when you think about it in the context of the Old Testament, it's horrible. They're being unfaithful to God. In fact, it will be described as adultery deeper into Isaiah. But then when you think about their idolatry, you think, well, it's as much a problem for us, isn't it? Taking God for granted. Forgetting that we actually need God in the picture. And so when you come to the New Testament, we'll find... Rebukes in New Testament language too. So if you think about Colossians chapter three, the apostle Paul says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where your focus should be, living for Jesus in everything. Your life, everything you have, everything you are, it's not in this earth, it's not in your achievements, it's in Christ and what he's done for you. So set your heart and your eyes and everything on Jesus or down in three verse five, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. We don't, I don't think we normally think of greed as idolatry, but when it takes your eyes off God, means you're not fixing your eyes on Jesus. Well, it does become an idol as you chase after not just possessions, but achievements as well, or people. So on the day of the Lord, Isaiah says, idols will be dealt with. And that's a warning for us as well. Idols will be will be dealt with. The second uh theme that I reckon comes through is the one I've already identified. That's the, the, the theme of pride. But through this poem, pride and idolatry overlap, I reckon. There's an overlap here. Isaiah describes um places outside the border of Judah in verses twelve to eighteen. So the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan. It's like saying, sit back um, and look at human achievement. Look at the Harbour Bridge. Isn't it amazing? Look at the Opera House or the Statue of Liberty or the Great Wall of China and look at non-engineering things that you think are impressive as well. And look at the amazing things that humans have done. Isaiah is saying, no, don't put your confidence in human ability like that. Stop trusting in human achievement. Pride is something that we can struggle with and it can draw us away from God. And so the warning that Isaiah gives to Judah and Jerusalem is relevant to us as well. A third theme that you see coming through here is judgment. And it's judgment that's talked about in terms of shaking. So it was a long, 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 long time ago that we took the kids to some Lego thing. And you you had this platform and you built your Lego tower or whatever, and then hit a button and the whole thing shook and everything fell down. That's the kind of picture here. This is God shaking his creation, judging his creation, leveling it all. So in verse 19, people will flee to caves and rocks and holes in the ground from the fear of the presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Or again in verse 21, second half, when he rises to shake the earth. This idea of shaking is the idea of God judging. And that's the picture language Isaiah uses for judgment, and it's not just Isaiah that does. When you look ahead in chapter 3, Isaiah describes how God will shake Judah and Jerusalem, how he's going to judge his people, not long after Isaiah's time when Babylon comes through. But remember, as we read this, we see Isaiah looking forward to the future day of the Lord, which when you get to the New Testament, it's a period of time. And as you think about it in this, in this way, it's begun. Our world is under the judgment of God. Have a look at Romans 1. But Jesus will return for a final day of God's wrath and things will finally be set straight. But as you think about God's judgment in these ways, also think about a passage that we looked at earlier in the year when we were talking about church together. As we gather as a church, we gather around Christ in heaven, um, not around the Mount Sinai, but in chapter 12 of Hebrews it goes, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. The God we worship has made it possible that when Jesus will be the one that does that final judgment, we have this hope of something that will never be shaken. It lasts to eternity. And so even as Isaiah is speaking these words to the people of Israel, he's giving them hope through judgment, hope that we share as we live through judgment. So this is a poem, an engineer's favorite part of the Bible. Um, we've kind of looked across it, looked at the structure, looked at the themes, um, looked at the refrains to get our head around it. And as we do, it gives us an understanding of the way God will judge and the way that God will save. As we look across what we've seen in Isaiah so far, we've seen this vision that God has in chapter 1, verse 1 through to 2, verse 5, this vision that now we're seeing in chapter 2, verse 6 to 4, verse 6, this vision that focuses in on the day of the Lord, and Isaiah through chapter 2 gives this poetic summary of what what God will do on that day, but then look at the last verse in chapter 2, verse 22, the conclusion, because this is where we find our application. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Stop trusting in ourselves. Stop trusting in human achievement around us. Trust God not in humanity. If you think that maybe you've become a little proud or arrogant around God, um, I'm going to pray and I reckon before I pray, how about we have just a moment's silence, a chance to say sorry, um, and then I'll close. So just take a moment to pray to God. Father God, please forgive us for our pride. Please forgive us for our arrogance. Please forgive us for the ways that we ignore you and the ways we chase after things that really don't matter. Lord, thank you for the reminder here in Isaiah chapter 2 that you are sovereign, that you are exalted, and that you will judge. You'll bring the proud down. But, Father, at the same time, thank you that we know that you sent Jesus to die our death for us, to rise again, conquering sin and death. And, Lord, thank you that as people who trust in him, we have hope, hope beyond judgment. Lord, we pray that as a church that we would be clear in our understanding of what Jesus has done for us. We pray that we would be helping each other. um, And all the more as we see the day approaching of Jesus' return, helping each other to live for you. We pray that we would be spurring one, one another on to love and good deeds. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.